Father, we thank you for this remarkable passage that your beloved Son gave us by the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we engage with you tonight. We say these are glorious and wonderful realities that are bigger than our natural intellect. We ask you to mark our heart. We ask you for living understanding, Lord. And Holy Spirit, again, we recognize you as the teacher that leads us into truth if we ask you to. So we ask you to do that tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking at session 13, which is the final session in the John 14 series. And then we have the Christmas break. This is our final session because Christmas is coming right up. And then at the end of January, we pick up John 15. And then, Lord willing, in the summer, we do John 16, and then next fall, John 17. <laughs> well, that's the plan. That's verse by verse to work through it. Tonight, I'm giving you an extended handout, so obviously I'm not going to cover it all like I did last week. I gave you last week, some of this week's, and this week's I'm giving you some repetition from last week for those that are first time, so you can just kind of read it on your own, fill in some of the blanks. Well, I love uh, paragraph A. I love this. The emphasis that Jesus gave in this teaching to loving God. Now remember John 13 to 17 is the greatest teacher giving the greatest teaching in human history. And in it, he linked loving God to obeying God five times. I made that point last session, so, but it's just worthy of repeating. Let's look at this, verse 15. If you love me, Keep my commandments. He that keeps them loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Verse 24, he says it the opposite way. If you don't love me, you don't keep my word. Then verse 31, he gives his own example. I love the Father, so I do what he tells me. He locks in this reality, not just of obedience as love, but the preeminence of love in his mind, giving this most significant teaching. Then in, verse, in paragraph B, as we looked at in our last session, he says, I'll give you a supernatural helper. He'll help you understand and empower you to walk in love. He'll teach you about the love of the Father, the love of the Son. He'll impart love in you. Let's look at paragraph C. Again from last week. A vibrant walk in the Holy Spirit is essential. Oh, this is so obvious, but it just needs to be said. In our quest to experience more of God. It's worth the emotional effort. It takes some mo mental and emotional effort to engage with the Holy Spirit, to talk to him. But if we talk to him, he will inspire us. He'll, he'll inspire us even if we don't, but he'll inspire us much more if we do, if we talk to him. The scripture refers to this as fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit. I gave you a few verses there. Paragraph D, this is the verse we ended with last week. Jesus made one of the most dramatic statements. I consider this, paragraph D, to be the climactic point of John chapter 14. It says, I want you to know that in the way that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, that's verse 10. Now verse 20, he brings it up a notch. He goes, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, and I'm in you, and you're in me. You're a part of this. And again, they're a little bit overwhelmed, deer in the headlights, like, 
what? We don't even grasp verse 10 that you were in the Father and the Father's in you. And now you're saying that same relationship that you had with the Father in your humanity, you're inviting us into it. That's in verse 14. And I mean, in verse 20. And he says, in that day, you're going to know, you're going to understand this. And of course, that day, there's two days, when he rose from the dead with a physical body, they were saying, you really are God. You're really in the Father, and the Father's in you. We believe it. When he broke the chains of death in his human body, and they're just awestruck. In that day, the resurrection convinced them of his deity. He's in the Father, and the Father's in, the, in him. Then in the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, when the Spirit came on them, they began the journey of understanding they were also involved in that mystical union. We ended with that last week. Paragraph E. We'll look at this in our next course, John 15, which again will take 12 or 15 weeks, however many it adds up to, because we always have special events that we don't always predict happening, and we got the descend arrowhead coming and some other things happening in the spring, so we'll probably miss a few Fridays, but they'll be good Fridays. But uh, in John 15, he elaborates on what he said with, in verse 20, when he said, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me, I'm in you, you're in me, that relationship, because I'll tell you more about it in a minute. And he tells them more about it in John chapter 15. Turn to uh, top of page two. Most of that was just review from last week. But this, I don't want you to miss verse 20, this, the Father's in me, I'm in you, you're in me. This is dramatic beyond measure, the implications of this, that broken human beings like us can actually participate in that family dynamic between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're actually in the family. We can be in that Trinitarian conversation in part and the Lord will, will fascinate and excite and exhilarate our spirit with just little bits of that. A little bit of that goes a long way. Roman number two, all believers, here's the practical result of uh, 14 verse 20 of being in him and him in us, is that we're called in verse 21 to enjoy the manifest presence. This is within reach of everyone. But it's a thing that so many believers, and I, I, I say this to be encouraging, this sounds a little negative, so many believers, their pain and complaint is, I don't feel his manifest presence. And the Lord says, but don't let go. Don't camp out there, stay with it. Because this is within reach of everybody that will interact with the Holy Spirit in time. These things will mark your mind, that's living understanding, and will... Empower your emotions. You'll fill it in your mind and your heart. In your thinking and your emotions, there'll be a growing moments and just little installments of inspiration, but over time, they make a big difference. And it's called God manifesting himself on the human heart, the mind and the heart, or the thinking and the emotions. So in verse 15, Jesus connected loving God to obeying him. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Now in verse 21, he brings it up a notch. He goes, you know what I said a minute ago in verse 15? If you love me, you'll obey me. I'm gonna add two more points now. If you love me and obey me, I'm gonna tell you two more things. 
So he's building on verse 15, just to give you the, the, the flow of thought here. And this is the practical result of uh, our mystical union with him. He goes, the Father will love you. If you love me, this is an interesting point, the Father will love you. That's a, that's a doctrinal point that almost you never hear developed. And I'm going to develop it a little bit tonight by the grace of God. He goes, number one, if you love me, the Father will love you. Sounds like you're earning God's love. That's not what he's saying. And he goes, and if you love me, the second thing, I'm going to manifest myself on your heart and your mind in a way that's discernible to you. You're going to have inspired thoughts, not all of them, but more than you've ever had before, and you're going to have inspired, energized emotions for me. You're going to feel my presence a little bit. I don't mean on your body. You might hear in there sometimes the Holy Spirit will rest on you, but your heart and your mind will be touched. So he adds these two things in verse 21. He adds them to what he said in verse 15. Verse 15, if you love me, obey me. Here he says, if you love me and obey me, my Father will love you, number one, and I will manifest. I'll come and rest in my presence in you and on you in a way that's discernible to you. It'll change your life. It'll make your life, you'll be fascinated in your walk with God. And so many that aren't, the point isn't to say I'm not. The point is saying, hey, that, that's my destiny. That's my inheritance. I'm not letting go. I've got an inheritance more than I'm walking in, and I'm going to walk in it in this age. Let's read it in verse 21. He that has my commandment and keeps them, it is he who loves me. That sounds like verse 15. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's the new point. And I will love him. I'm going to put those together. And the second point, I'm going to manifest myself to him. Now let's just, paragraph B, isolate this phrase. Just, it's so emotional. It's so dramatic. He says, he that loves me, he obeys me. It is he who loves me. Now just imagine, one day you're standing before the Lord himself. I'm talking about Jesus in the resurrection on, on that day when, when you meet him face to face. And there's others around and he looks at you and he looks at them and he said, points right at you and says, this one loved me. This is one who loved me. It is he who loved me. This one right here. Imagine him saying that to you. I can't imagine any sentence more powerful than to hear that. Now I put here the most famous, I mean the most common passage you hear, you hear it at funerals. You know, that the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But even more than well done, could you imagine Jesus testifying that this is he who loved me? Make that one of your life goals. Say, well, I'm going to need the help of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm here for you. Paragraph C. Jesus said, you'll be loved by my Father. Now, you're going to notice in, in, in these five chapters, John 13 to 17, that's what we're looking at, these five chapters, the upper room discourse. This has a very specific meaning that they will be loved by the Father. It means more than the general love that God has for everyone. Jesus says it three times. It's a glorious insight. It's, I don't know that there's anything more important than to understand what it means in to walk in this thing, and then my Father will love him. Look at it, it says in verse 21, he that loves me will be loved by my Father. Like, whoa, this is like, 
Verse 23 says it again. Anyone who loves me, my Father will love him. And he says it again in chapter 16. For the Father himself of his own loves you because you loved me. Now in paragraph D, the idea of, love, of God loving us because we obeyed Jesus, it confuses us. We're not, you know, as good Protestant evangelicals, you know, the Reformation, we understand we're saved by faith. It's what? Well, Jesus, don't you understand the grace of God that Paul taught us? We don't earn the grace of God. Jesus says, that's not what I'm talking about. But this idea at first, I remember when I first ran into this some, some years back, I went, if I love Jesus, God will love me. That sounds like I'm earning it. It sounds like a contradiction to the truth that I love him because he first loved me for free. And that's what the scripture says. John himself says it. Look right there in 1 John 4, 19. We love God because we first understand, we understood he loved us. And that understanding that he loved us in our brokenness and our darkness and our sin awakened our heart of gratitude to love him in return. One of the foundational biblical truths is that Jesus does not begin to love us after we first love him. It's opposite. Our love for him springs out of the revelation of his love for us. Well, what's he talking about? Look at paragraph E. Jesus spoke of two expressions of God's love. He used it in two different ways, very distinct ways. And it's very clear when you put a lot of different scriptures together. The first is God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. The world in darkness had no regard for God. God was such infinite love for unbelievers, he gave his son. So the father loves everyone redemptively. And what I mean by redemptively, he sent Jesus and he loves everyone that has no regard for him in the sense that he values them. He cares for them, he pursues them. God so loved the world. God only can only love one way. That's infinitely. You know, Jeremiah 33, he said, you love me with everlasting love. God's love is infinite and everlasting. He can't love less than that. So his love for all the people of the world, it's not motivated by us because his love's infinite. It can't increase. He won't love you more a million years from now than he does right now. He loves you redemptively. He says, I value you. I care for you. I am pursuing you and your good. But there's a second way in which Jesus uses and the Bible uses the idea of God's relating to people that are faithful. And that is in paragraph two, God loves or he enjoys the relationship with those who obey him. God calls their choices delightful. He's delighting in the relationship. God loves everyone, but he has a special delight in relating to the people who value his love as evidenced by seeking to obey him. He loves, I like to say, he enjoys. But the word enjoys there, and it gives you, I believe, the meaning of how he's using it and how the scripture uses this idea of God having delight and enjoyment in some believers more than others in the relationship with them because they are uh, uh, valuing him and he trusts them 
and partners with, with them and delights in the partnership with them. He loves the others no matter. He loves them equally, but he enjoys the relationship. He enjoys and esteems their life choices. He loves and enjoys the fruit of their life. He delights in working with them because they're partnering with him. The father says, this is a delight to work together with you. The Lord loves, he enjoys the relationship that godly believers, the way they relate to other people, even unbelievers, the Lord looks down and they're showing humility and servanthood and kindness and forbearance. And the Lord goes, I delight in this. Look at this. They're loving people in the overflow of how I value people. And the Lord delights in that. Much like a parent would delight in a child that's responsible, responding, not that you love that child more than the other, but there's a delight in the interaction because there's agreement and value and partnership at a deeper and deeper and increasing level. Paul refers to this same idea. We're in paragraph two. He called it living in a way that's well-pleasing to God. And many believers, they're, they're saved and, and they're, they have a general uh, commitment to the Lord, but there are those that have gone above and beyond the kind of the norm and they're well-pleasing to the Lord. That's the same idea. John spoke of himself. He says, I'm one of the disciples whom the Lord loved. And he doesn't mean the Lord loved me in the way that he loves everyone. He goes, he enjoys my interaction with him. That's what John's actually saying. When I go to him, there's, he looks at me and he knows that I value, Jesus knows when he looked at John that John valued Jesus, valued his leadership, valued his heart, wanted to be near him, wanted to be like him. God said something similar to this, uh, or through an angel, when uh, uh, Daniel was spoken to by the angel, and he was called beloved of the Lord. Now, everyone, every believer is beloved of the Lord, but Daniel, in this sense, the Lord was saying, Daniel, I trust your relationship to me in a special way because I've been, and I'm entrusting more to you because you're actually showing yourself faithful to me. Jesus spoke of some believers. He says, no, it's the same idea, but in different language here. In Matthew chapter five, and this kind of throws off some people. Some folks don't like this at all, and I understand why they don't like it. I've, I've talked to folks before, and they go, well, that doesn't sound right. I go, well, it's Jesus. So uh, if, if you read something from Jesus that doesn't sound all right, it's better that you try to change than try to change, <laughs> you, you know, you got it. <laughs> Just having fun. But Jesus said, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments, he means consistently. Doesn't mean you stumbled that one day type thing or had a bad month. Whoever breaks one of the least of my commandments and actually promotes it. You encourage others to do it. Not only do you do it, but you promote it. You're that confident in, in dismissing that commandment. You're in the kingdom, but you're called least. Meaning, it doesn't mean you're not, you're least, you're, you have less value to God, but God calls your life choices. He doesn't call them great. He says, but if you do and promote my teaching, God will call you, meaning your life choices. I mean, nobody's great intrinsically in and of themselves. The Lord looks down and says, I'm pleased with those choices, and I call your life choices great. And a person, without any regard 
to their education, their social status, the size of their ministry impact, anybody, look at that, says whosoever, anybody can enter into that. To live in a way where they're seeking to obey the Lord's teachings and they're promoting them, even if only two people on the earth listen to you and they're both your grandchildren, you know? <laughs> That's the only person that will listen to you. The Lord says, you promote it and you do it, I will call your life choices great. That's the same idea, I enjoy the relationship. That's the same idea Jesus is talking about. I love, the Father loves that interaction with them. He's not only interacting through forbearance and through patience, he's interacting, seeing the delight of the fruitfulness of that person's life. Top of page three. Jesus said, not only if a person loves me, will my father enjoy and, and actually consider their life choices great. That's the takeaway. But number two, paragraph F, my, I will manifest my presence on him and in him. Jesus linked the obedient love to our capacity to experience God's presence internally. It's, it's the passage we looked at in the last session Hebrews 10, verse 16, God says, I'll, by the Spirit, I'll write my word on your mind. That's living understanding. That's illumined understanding. And I'll write my word upon your heart. That's emotions that are touched. He goes, I'll touch you by the finger of God, by the Holy Spirit, and you're thinking your mind. Again, it's not all of a sudden dramatic. One day you're this way. Everything is different. It's mostly little by little, year by year, but it increases. And in my life, I have found it's three steps forwards, sometimes two steps back, but I look over the years and it keeps moving forward. So I don't want to present it in an, in an exaggerated way, but I'm telling you, he will manifest his presence on your mind and upon your emotions. A believer doesn't earn God's love by obedience, but they position themselves to experience more of his love for them because they're living in agreement with his heart and his leadership. Number one, the father displays his enjoyment of the relationship. He loves the child that's even resisting him. He still loves the child, but he enjoys the relationship of the one that's responding, and he enjoys the partnership in the kingdom. They're working together. Father with his daughters and sons, sons and daughters. They experience, I'm still in paragraph one, they experience his manifest presence on their thinking and on their emotions in a more consistent way. Not a perfect way in this age, but a more consistent way. There's still human element, there's still a human weakness, but there's more of those moments of inspiration in our thinking and in our emotions, our feelings. Paragraph two, the nature of God's love, it increases when it's received, when we receive the love of God and return it back to him. When we receive it, Father, we believe your word. You say you love us for free, and we return it back. Love increases in both of those ways. We receive it more, and we return it back more. The rich get richer. Jesus said it this way in Mark 4. He said, whatever measure that you engage with, whatever measure of, uh, that you engage with a certain truth, if you engage with it, you know, hypothetically, a scale of 1 to 10, at an 8, if you really engage with that truth and that promise, that promise and truth will be measured back to you if you use it, if you engage with it. 
And to you who hear, meaning you're listening and responding is what it means. It doesn't mean just you heard it in your ears. But to hear in the biblical sense means to respond. And to you who respond, even more will be given. Whoever has, more will increase. If you have a little bit of the revelation of, of the love of God and a little bit of love for Jesus, and you engage it, you use it, it will increase. You'll get more revelation of the love of God, and you'll feel more love for him. Then you engage it, you use it, and the more. And the Lord says, whatever measure, if you will engage that truth, you will grow in that truth. Our capacity to receive and return love increases as we increase our agreement and engagement with him in that truth. That's why all these truths, I like to just stop when there's a biblical truth like this and say, thank you, Lord, that more will be measured to me. Show me more about this. Say thank you, show me more. Again, that's just, I've said this a hundred times, that's just the way to start the conversation, and the conversation may only go five seconds, but if you start with that, many times you'll go a little bit longer than that. You don't even have to know what you're going to say. Just when I see these truths, I say, thank you for that truth. Show me more. And the Holy Spirit says, well, if you ask me to, I will. Not always the minute you show me, but if you bring it in the conversation, I will answer it in the conversation in my timing. Obedience brings our mind and emotion into agreement with his mind and emotion. Beloved, think of this. The most infinitely beautiful, fascinating, satisfied mind, Jesus. We come into a little bit more agreement. We feel it because we're thinking a little bit more like this beautiful, interesting, fascinating, fully happy, satisfied mind and heart. We come into agreement with him and more and more touches us. The kind of a passive, distant, Common Christian lifestyle of, well, you know, I'll just out of the grace of God, I'll just do what I want, and hopefully I get to heaven. Like, ugh, what a waste of 70, 80 years on the earth. There is so much within reach of the person that Jesus said, if you will use it to the measure you use it, to the measure you engage with it, Matthew, I mean, Mark 4, 24, I will, I will respond. Roman number three. Now Jesus is going to elaborate on his call to Enjoy the manifest presence. In verse 20, he says, you're in the Father, the Father's in you, I'm in you, you're in me. You know, that mystical union, that's verse 20. Verse 21, he goes, now that you know there's a union, if you love me, the Father will love you, number one, and I'll manifest myself to you. Like, okay, things are picking up. Now Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you more about that right now. And so let's read verse 21 and 22, just to kind of get the flow again. In verse 21. Jesus said, he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I'll manifest myself. So Judas, not Iscariot, there was two Judases in the apostolic company. Judas says, you're going to manifest yourself to us. He goes, how is it that you will only manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, this is confusing. Like, this is, you manifest yourself to us. Judas is not understanding him because on Tuesday... This is Thursday. This is the Last Supper, Thursday night, before he dies on Friday. On Tuesday, he taught them Matthew 24 and 25. In Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, The Son of Man's coming on clouds, and every eye will see him. All the nations will see him. Okay? That's Matthew 24, verse 30. Then Matthew 25, verse 31 and 32, Jesus, the same message 
He goes, and by the way, when that happens, I will sit on my throne of glory and all the nations will come to me. They will all bow down. That's Tuesday. It's Thursday. Judas is going, now in what way are you going to show yourself physically to us and rule the world, but nobody else sees you? That didn't make any sense. Then you say Tuesday, everybody will see you. And if you show up as the king of the globe, which that's who you're, you are as the Messiah, how could you run the earth but nobody see you but us 12? Because he doesn't understand. He doesn't have a, a vision or a grid for a spiritual engagement with Jesus. And that's what Jesus is transitioning to them to this idea and this teaching. And the idea is Judas... I'm talking about manifesting myself to you on the inside. Like, well, what do you mean? You've never done that before. I know. I've been with you three years or so. I've not done that to you yet. You haven't received the Holy Spirit. But something's going to start new starting tomorrow. I'm dying. And you're going to learn to grow in my manifest presence and inside your mind and, and, and your heart and, now, and actually through your hands when you pray for the sick, et cetera. And they're going, oh, wait, wait, are, you're the son of David, right? You're the, you're the son of man. You're the Messiah. All the nations are going to bow down, right? How, and then how come we're the only ones who see you if all the earth is going to obey you? Well, you don't really get it. I'm going to die. I'm going to be invisible to you and the, and, and the body of Christ for the next 2,000 years. But my spirit will be in you. I mean, he just, I mean, he has no vision for this. He has no grid except for to see him physically. And actually, a lot of believers are like that. They believe in the second coming dramatically. They cannot wait for the second coming, but they're not engaging with him spiritually because like Judas, they're content to wait to see him physically. And Jesus is saying, Judas, there's so much I have for you right now. Then he goes on in verse 23. Now in verse 23... He's getting, let, let, let's, let's read it. He says, Jesus answered, he goes, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Ooh, that's that father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. But he who does not love me does not keep my words. Make no mistake about it. If you do not love me, you won't keep my words, but let that be clear to you. Where you stand in, in reality of where your heart is. But the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's a very important statement. So what's happening? Let's, let's get the whole flow of, uh, of the conversation because I love the flow of the conversation. Because then it feels like a real conversation instead of just kind of random Bible truths that are strung together. They don't connect, but they do connect. In verse 15, he starts. Principle number one, if you love me, obey me. Verse 16, I'm going to give you the spirit to help you obey me, and it's going to be the spirit of truth. He's going to teach you how I love you and how you love me, and he's going to help you. So you're not on your own. I'm going to help you. Okay, I'm going to bring you, verse 20, to the place where the Father's in you, and you're in me, and I am you. You know that mystical union that you've never, you don't know anything about, but I'm going to bring you there. Okay, verse 21 then. When you love me, you'll obey me. Two new ideas. The Father will love you, and I will manifest myself on you. Now here in verse 23, he's bringing it up to another notch. He's bringing up two more points. He says in verse 23, he goes, you know, I just told you 
that if you love me, my father will love you. Now I'm gonna tell you something else, that this is for anyone. This is not just for the 12 apostles. He gives this promise of inclusion. He goes, shout this from the rooftops. This is for anyone, because they were kind of assuming it was us four no more. It was the apostolic company. Because I mean, even just some months ago, John was saying, hey, that group in Samaria, they were not submitting to our team, and shouldn't we stop them, forbid them from casting out devils? And Jesus says, no, my plan is much bigger than us four no more. It's way bigger than you guys. It's going to involve the Gentiles and all the nations. So Jesus puts that and he inserts that. Now, to us, we're used to the idea it's for everyone, but to them, that was like, well, we're the ones that followed you. What do you mean? He goes, no, everyone. It's way bigger than you. It's going to be to the Gentiles, to the Romans. It's going everywhere. Wow. That tripped them a little bit, but it excites us because he adds that, that additional element of inclusion. Then he goes, and we're going to go beyond the Father loving you, although there's nothing greater than the Father loving you. We are actually going to make our home with you. We're not just going to visit you with an occasional manifestation. Here and there, there's going to be a consistency that we could connect to the word. We're going to make our home with you. So anyone and a greater consistency than you ever imagined is where this is going. He's every couple verses. He's at, he's building. He's saying what he said before, then adding another two, one, two or three points. And because some of you, this is a brand new passage, you might not follow that. But take these notes, because it's not really that complicated, and get the flow of thought and go, wow, this thing is really going somewhere. Paragraph B, if anyone loves me, all the barriers are removed. Paragraph C, we will come to him. And, and what, I'm not going to spend time on it, but Jesus is referring, in, in my opinion, to the well-known passage in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, where the, where the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, and he goes, oh, you want to build me a house, a temple? You want to you construct my home for you? Well, let me tell you where my home is in reality. It's I'm going to rest on people that are in agreement with me. That's where my home is. And that's a little bit of a strange thought in the Old Testament because the house and the home of the Lord was only the temple. No, he goes, no, it's on the person that trembles at my word. I'm going to rest on that person. That's a really progressive thought, 700 years B.C., that Isaiah lays out. Nobody gets it. Jesus is actually building on that thought. He goes, I have biblical precedent for what I'm saying. I'm not just going to take you to heaven. I'm going to make your heart, as you interact with me, there will be a consistency, not a, a, a random manifestation here and there. We're going to actually take up, we're, you're gonna, we're going to make our home in your heart. Meaning, not just by faith, you're going to actually enjoy the dialogue. It's a heightened dialogue. Top of page four. We'll make our home with you. You know, earlier in John 14, Jesus said, I'm preparing a, pl a place in the Father's house for the, in the age to come. That's in heaven. But I'm also now here in verse 23, preparing not a place in the Father's house for you, but a place for the Father inside of you in this age, verse 23. So he's, he's using this word, the house, two different ways. He goes, yes, 
There's a prepared house in the age to come for you, but your, ha- your heart is a house for the Lord in this age that we're preparing for the Father. And they're like, wow, what? <laughs> I mean, I just can't, no one has ever talked about mystical union with God by the Holy Spirit the first time it's ever been said. He says, you'll get it when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. Not that you'll get it all that day, but the teacher will start unlocking this to you piece by piece, step by step, day by day. Look at paragraph two, I love this. Spurgeon says, little faith will take your soul to heaven. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the 1800s in London. But great faith will bring heaven to your soul while you're still on the earth. And he's actually making reference to to this passage here. Then Jesus makes this other point in verse 24. He goes, the word that you hear is not mine. It's the Father's who sent me. There's a really important reason he's saying that. He's saying, Jesus is saying, I want you to know that this whole thing is not even my idea. It's not even my teachings. If you want to know the truth, I'm not starting a religious movement and you guys are my my loyal followers and hey, we got something big going on. I'm calling you to something infinitely bigger than you know. The Genesis 1 God, the God of Revelation 4 and 5, that the elders fall and the angels seraphim and the living creatures cover their eyes. This is his idea. This is his movement. I'm not just a Jewish leader with another religion. And when people want to kind of, you know, have the kind of the real understanding heart and they think, well, Christianity is just another religion. No, no. It's the Father's teaching. Jesus says, not even mine. It's way bigger than what any of you understand. I'm here representing his ideas and his movement, and this thing's going to last forever. That's what he's really saying to them. He goes, I know you're loyal to me. And I love that you're loyal to me, but you got to understand I'm a representative of someone else, and it's his kingdom that I'm a representative of, and I'm teaching it to you. So I want you loyal to him. And I want you responding in a way he makes his home in your life. They're thinking, well, we don't really know the Father very well. We talk to you all the time. No, no, you're going to know the Father, I'm telling you. This is more glorious than you understand. Roman number four. Well, Roman, uh, uh, Holy Spirit's gonna give supernatural understanding and supernatural peace. They didn't understand hardly any of this. They didn't understand the mystical union of verse 20. They didn't understand he's gonna come to them spiritually and the Father will love them and manifest themselves and make his home in their heart. Like, they're going, what are you talking about? But he goes, you, you will get these things pretty soon. And the truth for us is we will get them too if we ask the, I mean, they're in the word, but still without the Holy Spirit's help, these ideas just bounce right off. We read them and like they don't penetrate. Verse 25, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you. Now in context, the these things is, is John 13 and 14. It's not just talking about all biblical truth, although that you could fit it in there, but he's He's making another point. He's saying John 13 and 14 is really important. That's the point he's making. Don't put that to the side and kind of get around to those two chapters someday. 
These are the things I'm speaking while I'm present with you, and I only have a very short amount of time with you, and these are the priorities of what I want you to know. This is my last evening with you. And so he's really highlighting the value of John 13 and 14 right here. And then he goes on, he says, you know the Holy Spirit I told you about in verse 16, the helper? Verse 17, the spirit of truth? Well, here in verse 26, he goes, let me tell you what the spirit of truth is gonna do. He's gonna teach you. We looked about at that last week a little bit. Many, many things he'll teach you. I don't wanna develop that again. But he goes, he's gonna do more than teach you. He's gonna bring to your remembrance things that he's already taught you. He's gonna bring to your remembrance things I've said to you. Now, paragraph B, there's a practical, even application of this, the things I've, I have spoken while with you. In paragraph B, today in your everyday life, there are moments where the Lord is with you, speaking to you in a heightened way. He's inspiring an idea. He's, a, he's awakening a promise. He's giving a commission to you. And we want to pay attention to these. We want to be, we want to be as I call it being a student of the anointing in our life. When the Holy Spirit speaks or inspires something to me, I don't do it all the time. I don't want to uh, exaggerate this, but many times I write it down and I say it back to Him. I want to be a student of the anointing in my life, meaning that little fragment of insight. If I capture it and write it and say it back, the Lord says, oh, you're being a steward of what I gave you. That phrase will just disappear if you don't do anything with it. But if you write it, remember it, and bring it back to me, that thing's gonna grow in you. That truth is. So there are things he speaks to you while he's with you in your private time with him. Here and there, not all day, every day. Pay attention to those times. He says, paragraph C, the spirit will teach you all things. This is fantastic. Again, we looked a little bit on how the Spirit teaches in our last session. But here I want to highlight that he's going to bring to your remembrance. Paragraph C, throughout our Christian life, there are moments when the Holy Spirit gives us various divine assignments and promises. Now, when I think about over the 50 years I've walked with the Lord, there's this day and that day, here and there, he has given a specific, clear assignment, and not hundreds of them, but a handful of them, and some promises. And I'm like, okay. And I've made some promises back to him, saying, Lord, I set my heart to do this. But because I'm a weak human being, I don't remember all the promises. <laughs> I said, Lord, I set my heart back in whatever year it was, and I set my heart to do it, and it was real, but I need help to remember it. And the Lord says, I'm gonna actually remind you of the way you gave yourself to me in the past, and I'm gonna help you with it. And what he's really saying is, I'm gonna remind you of things that will mean the most to you at the judgment seat of Christ that you've forgotten, that you said you would do before me. There are things, all of us in this room, if you're just because of our humanity, we've in our sincerity have set our heart and we were really inspired, even a little bit, to say it to the Lord, and the Lord gave us grace to see it and say it, but we forget it. And the Lord says, I'm gonna bring you back to previous commitments you've made to me. I don't mean to beat you up with them, to remind you that I really did touch your heart and I could touch your heart with it again. I could cause that to be recovered and you're gonna want that recovered before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm gonna, this is a glorious thing. Holy Spirit, we ask you, remind us of things that you've promised us, things that we promised you. 
that we had grace to hear and to say back to you. Give us that renewed inner urgency and, and confidence to move forward. In paragraph D, he bookends the chapter 14. He starts it with, I'll give you peace, or, or, or do not let your heart be troubled. And then he ends with, Don't, I'll give you peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. So he bookends it. We've already talked about that a number of times. Talk, uh, top of page five. Now he's going on. Jesus is gonna give his perspective of his death. First, in verse 28 to 30, he's gonna give a glory victory perspective of his death. And then in verse 31, he's gonna give how his death is a declaration of his lavish love for the Father. That's what his death was about. So he's gonna give them a new view of his death. And in that, we're gonna understand his paradigm of death. And I believe anytime, all through history, that's important. But I believe in the generation the Lord returns with all the increase of pressures and troubles, there's never a generation that will need Jesus's paradigm of death, like the end time church that's gonna be perfected. In, I mean, they're gonna walk in the glory of God, but we're gonna grasp more of what he grasped about life and death. Paragraph A, he's exhorting them to agree with his view of death. He goes, don't just see my death as my separation from you. He goes, see the positive side. I'm going to the Father. This is like amazing. Have you read Revelation 4 recently? That's where I'm going forever. You ought to be a little bit encouraged for me. I mean, this is like pretty exciting. I got a real dark tunnel to get through, but I mean, it's amazing where I will be soon. Well, they only focused on the negative side, which the negative side's real how much loss they would have, and even how much pain he would go through in suffering. They had true empathy for him, but more concern legitimately. That's not, someone says selfish, well, hey, Jesus likes amazing, and you're with him for three years, and he's gone? Like, that's pretty traumatic, and he's the suffering death. But let's read it. He said, you've heard me say I'm going away, but I'm coming back to you. But if you loved me, you would rejoice because when I'm going away, I'm actually going to the throne of God, Revelation 4 and 5. I'm going to sit at the right hand of Revelation 4 and 5, he who sits upon the throne. My father's greater than I. I've told you before it happens so that when I go away, you will understand there was a divine purpose in it. You'll actually see it as fulfilled prophecy instead of Satan having a victory over me. I'm telling you on the front end, so when it happens, you don't buy the lie that Satan got one in on me and has a victory and I lost. No, no, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm telling you, so you're gonna have some anguish for a little while, he tells him in John 16, he goes like the, the woman who has the child in pain, the anguish of childbirth, but when the baby comes, your joy is coming right away. But he goes, you're gonna connect the dots soon that this was a triumph, not a loss. But at first, it will seem like a loss. Paragraph B, first thing he says, I'm going away. Well, this is troublesome because he hasn't overthrown the Roman Empire and everybody knows the Messiah has to overthrow the Roman Empire or the oppressors of Israel. And it would happen to be the Roman Empire of that day. They're still in power. They're going, how can you go away if they're still in power? And you promised us in Matthew 9, we would sit on thrones and rule with you. We're not on thrones. And our enemies are still everywhere. How could you be, go away? 
They wanted a revolution that everybody would see, and that will happen when he comes back the second time. But we can relate to what Jesus is doing because think of the times Jesus has given you really clear promises. Maybe it was two or three or four, maybe one or two or five. I don't know what the number. I don't mean hundreds of your own life, but the breakthrough hasn't come, hasn't come. It's like year after year, is it coming? That's what he was doing with him. He goes, you're going to see down the road by the Holy Spirit that actually my leadership is good in this because I am going away. The breakthrough is going to be delayed. It really is. But the breakthrough is clear. But I'm coming back to you. Well, he's going to come in the resurrection for 40 days. They're going to see him a handful of times. Then he's going to come to them by the indwelling spirit on the day of Pentecost and live inside of them. But eventually, he's going to do what he told them on Tuesday. Matthew 24, 30. Every eye will see me. Every nation will bow. I am coming back then too. That's the one they were locked into. He says, oh, that's still real. That's still real. But there's a lot that we're going to do together before that. Paragraph D, if you loved me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. Jesus' paradigm of death was going to the Father. His departure, it bothered them. And he goes, I know it bothers you, but there's a bigger story. It's okay that you're bothered. It really is. And it's okay that you're pained about the pain I'm going through, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the whole story. Paragraph E, my Father's greater than I. He's not implying he's less than God. He's, he's as much deity as the Father and the Spirit. But the Father's not subject to human limitations like Jesus is in his humanity. And in his earthly ministry, Jesus was subject. And the Father functionally, and the way they function together, has the higher authority within the Godhead. But they're in perfect unity together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God. Paragraph F, he goes, I told you before, because I want to strengthen you, because when you see my death is actually fulfilled prophecy and not the devil winning, you're going to say there's a divine purpose in this. Paragraph one, prophetic revelation, those few promises we have, I mean, we got the biblical promises, but those few promises that a believer will have, the Holy Spirit gave them in a dream or prophetic encounter somehow, when, it, when we carry those, and then it begins to happen even little by little. The Lord is letting us know he's in control, sovereign control. He lets us know those promises are important to him and they're certain to come. I'm the one that told you. I'm in control, so trust my timing. They are dear to me and they're sure to come to you. And the point of it is, paragraph two, so the, so the people don't quit. He goes, so you believe, which means you don't quit. When he says, you, because to not believe meant to cave in in despair. It's, ah, forget it. I'm just tired of pressing in for this great breakthrough. Forget it. He goes, no, keep on believing. Pressing in for the breakthrough is the idea. He's not talking about the simple believing that Jesus is the Messiah. But stay engaged. Stay in the tension and the struggle. I think it's really significant that in Acts chapter 2, it says that the Holy Spirit dreams and visions coming on all flesh. All believers are going to operate in the Holy Spirit in those years leading up to the return of the Lord. That's, that's remarkable. Paragraph G, Jesus said, I will not talk much longer, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has nothing in me. Now, in verse 30, he goes, I'm, gonna, I, I'm getting done at the end of my conversation. Verse 31, the very next verse we'll see in a few moments. He says, let's go and leave this room right now. Because they're at the Last Supper. He goes, let's leave and go to another place to talk. And we'll get there in a minute. 
He goes, I, I'm not going to talk much longer. I have a short amount of time. Let me just make up a time. He's, got, he's like saying, hey, I only have an hour or two left, maybe more. I got some more things to tell you. And they're thinking, like, what do you mean? You only have an hour or two left. He didn't say that. Those are my words. But it's very short, and we got to leave this room right now. Why? Because the ruler of the world, Satan, is coming. In what way is Satan coming? He's coming in the person of Judas, bringing the Roman guard to arrest me. And Judas left the dinner ta- this place, and he knows where we're at right now, and we're moving right now. I believe he's moving by the spirit of prophecy. He goes, he will be here in a minute, or whatever. That's my opinion. And so they go to a- another place. But he says, be- we'll go there in a moment. Paragraph I, he goes, the ruler of the world, he goes, I want you to know that Satan is coming in, in the person of Judas and the Roman guards, Not that they're all demons, that's not the point, but they're being motivated by demons. He goes, I want you to know he has nothing in me. He has no victory over me at all. He's not gaining any victory at all. So don't don't be nervous about the ruler coming. We're just going to move the room. We're going to go to another place, and we're going to go to the garden. They'll be here in a few minutes. The reason we want to see that urgency, because he's going to teach them John 15 and 16, it's his last words he has for them. What would Jesus say if he only had an hour left? It's John 15 and 16. He's already emphasized why John 13 and 14 is important. Now he's saying, I've got a few more things to tell you. These are my last words. I mean, how important is John 15 and 16? Satan had some control over some of the events that took place of deceiving Judas and this, that, and the other, but he had no authority over Jesus. Jesus was voluntarily submitting himself to the Father's plan. Look at Romans 8. Paul said, God, the the Father did not spare his son. Listen to this. The Father delivered up Jesus to the cross. Satan tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. That's what Peter rose up in Matthew 16 and goes, you can't go to the cross. And in Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus said, I rebuke you, Satan. I am going to the cross. Satan did not want Jesus going to the cross. Satan's now that Jesus is resolved, his face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. It says in Luke 9 to die. Now Satan is going to use Judas to bring guilt on the Jewish nation and on the Romans. He's going to get everybody as guilty as possible. So he's using Satan to get more people liable to the sin against Jesus. But it's not to kill Jesus because he lost that battle. Jesus was offered up by the Father as a perfect sacrifice of love. Satan was disarmed. He was defeated by the cross. He didn't like trick Jesus and, oh, I got you and I killed you. And, oh, no, you rose from the dead. No, Satan didn't even want him to go. And he defeated Jesus, Satan on the cross. This was the predetermined plan of God from the beginning. Little, uh, uh, a Roman, my next Roman numeral. Uh, we're looking at chapter 14, verse 31. We'll come right to the very end here. Just, I won't read all these verses, but give you a little bit. Jesus knew that he would be fully vindicated in the Father's time. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. He knew that every living being would know the truth about him. Look what he said. He goes, the world's going to know that Satan didn't defeat me. I'm not a false Messiah. I'm not a failed Messiah. I'm not a fraud. Everyone is going to know that I did this out of love for the Father. He says, every single creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, Philippians 2 says, 
Every being, angelic, demonic, unbeliever, believer, every living being will bow before him. Everyone will know. And they says, and they'll know that I did this because I love the Father. He goes, the Father gave me commandment, I did it. This is the most costly display of love for the Father in human history. But Jesus is stamping over history. I mean, for billions of years, Jesus has stamped over history. I love the Father. That's who I am and what I did. That's what I am about. He goes, I obeyed him out of love. I'm not being defeated. This is glorious. It's agony for a while, but it's glorious. Jesus knew that God would vindicate his obedience. Earlier, he said, Matthew 11, he goes, they think I'm a drunkard and a glutton. I tell you, wisdom will be justified. The wisdom of my life will be proven by what it produces, my children. You wait and see if my lifestyle is not vindicated by my children, by the offspring of what I do. This is the will of the Father, he said in John 6, verse 39, that all that the Father's given me, I won't lose anything. Paragraph C, and as the Father commanded me, that's what I'm doing. What Jesus did, he goes, I told you to love God by obeying him. I am obeying the Father. This is not even my plan. It's his plan. He sent me for this purpose to die. And that's the command I'm obeying. So his love for the Father is the model for us. Then in verse, paragraph D, he goes, hey, we're not going to read that. You read that on your own. But he goes, let's leave here now. Because I believe that he knew that the ruler of the world was coming after him. He went somewhere else and talked a little bit, and I got a little bit on that. Then I believe he went to, the, I think he had a stop or two before he got to the garden. And then they, they get him in the garden because Judas says, well, he's supposed to be at the dinner, but he might be here. But I know, he go, I know they go over there, so probably he bought a little bit of time by moving a little bit because he wanted to give them John 15 and 16. But beloved, I want to tell you, there's one man that he will mark all of human history, and the statement is, I love the Father with everything that I did. Amen and amen. Let's stand before the Lord. What if the Lord would look at you one day on the last day, just go ahead, and say, this is he who loves me. What if he said those with his own mouth about your life? Not even just well done, but this one I can tell you for truth. He loved me. She loved me. Could you imagine such a statement? It's within reach of everyone. Put forth in my heart. Jesus, I love the way you this is he who loves me. So tenderly. What a life vision. My heart, Jesus. I love the way you move. Oh, the way you love you the Father, just walk Jesus. Into this room. Singing, I love. Oh, I love the way you Holy Spirit, bring to remembrance. The promises you've given us 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Bring to remembrance the grace we had to respond. Bring it back to us. Lord, show us again those things we will care about on that last day when we stand before you. Jesus, your word 
us, remind us. us again and again. Come and manifest your presence on our heart tonight. Manifest your presence in our hearts today, Lord. Speak to us moments of anointing. Christ, my heart to All over the room, Holy Spirit. Those joining through the internet, cause our hearts to burn. Those in living rooms right now, just watching with us, move on them by your hand. Living flame of love. Nothing greater than this truth. 
my fire, Lord. Something other than this. This is who you are in your weakness, anchored in the truth, in your failure, of who you are, in your lack of response. The Lord says, "This is who you are." Ask me again to help you. This is for weak people. Every step in you. This is for people like us. I need a helper. Enlighten the eyes of my understanding. Enlighten the eyes I of my understanding.